here at the Product and Packaging Powerhouse, our key mission is really to help with unveiling the realities of product developments, packaging strategies, and business tactics, empowering you, productpreneurs, and brands to advance, ascend, and accelerate your products into your marketplace. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast here on the Product and Packaging Powerhouse. And y'all know who I am. I'm Megan Young Gamble, Global Project Manager, Packaging Specialist, and an everyday lover of lip gloss. So if you always want to add to my collection, feel free to do so. And I am so excited to have today's industry powerhouse, an executive marketing director, and also an entrepreneur. Her name is Sandra Petropa. She holds a master's degree in cosmetic science and marketing. Brilliant girl, right? She has worked in the beauty industry her whole career, focusing on raw materials and also ingredients. She also has specialty experience with brand building and international brand development. Sandra has worked with countless experts from her native roots in Paris to London and now in New York. She is also an entrepreneur and founder of My Curl ID, an online store for high quality curly hair products. And girl, I sure needed you when I had my loose fro. And so Sandra is passionate about all things with representing Black women in the beauty industry. And guys, I'm so excited to have today's powerhouse guest, Sandra. So welcome to the show. Hi, Megan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to, to be here and have the opportunity to kind of discuss with you and share uh, our knowledge and passion about uh, the industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's always amazing when I meet other industry experts that are in the industry because we're all in different sectors, but yet there's so many similarities and commonalities we have across various industries and how they all intertwine. So I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. To get us started with you, share a little bit about your background and how you evolved into the beauty industry. So, yeah. So uh, as you say, you know, I was born and, uh, and raised in Paris and uh, very early on, I was always passionate about science. So chemistry and biology were my topic of choices at, at school. And uh, I also wanted to make my own makeup. There was nothing more to it than, you know, wanting to make my own makeup at some point uh, in my life. So I uh, I studied chemistry and then I took a specialization on uh, cosmetic science where I did work in a lab. I did make my own makeup. I didn't think it was that much fun for me to stay like working in the lab in the background. So, and then I directed my career more in marketing. I was always also passionate about, you know, discovering the world. I really wanted to have an international career. At the time, my English wasn't very good at school. So uh, after I finished university, I worked in Paris for a year and then I moved myself to London to learn to speak English. And this is where I really like take, take, took on my, my career, developed my career in the UK and had the opportunity to, to work in New York also. I have been in New York now for five, six years, still working in beauty, uh, still enjoying it very much so. It's amazing how where, regardless of where we're geographically located, we have a lot of alignment. So we both have undergrad in chemistry, first and yeah. foremost. We both worked in the lab. We both was like, this not, this not for us. <laughs> but you recognized and knew and learned early on in your educational career that cosmetic science was a thing. I didn't realize that until after I graduated college in transparency. So that, you know, just goes to show like where you're geographically located, you can be studying the same yeah. major, mm -hmm. but the different emphasis can really be different depending upon where I, it's highlighted. Yeah. I, I think it's a really a function of uh, where 
the, the birth of the cosmetic industry is, right? Mm -hmm. Beauty products have always been used across multiple cultures in different shape and form, but the mm -hmm. industry itself, if you think about, you know, who are the biggest player in the world of fragrance, of makeup, of skincare, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, these companies are in Europe and more specifically in France, right? And sure. so France, for a very long time, actually, France was one of the only countries that deliver master degree area of cosmetics. It's very, it's difficult still to find master degree. You can find, you know, undergraduate degrees in many countries, but to study and specialize in cosmetic science at, mm -hmm. you know, at that level, you, you can find that everywhere. So I think that that's why, you know, growing up in France and starting my uh, educational journey there uh, gave me access to, as you say, this opportunity to, you know, in beauty that didn't exist in many countries up until like, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point, you know, in France or in European countries and stuff that is more prevalent with yeah. the beauty industry. So mm -hmm. I didn't realize that France off was one of the one of the countries that offered a master's program in cosmetic yeah. science. Mm -hmm. And here in the U.S., you know, we have countless places yeah. that now offer, you know, the th degrees and stuff. But the one school I know is University of Cincinnati. They have a really big cosmetic science program. And I know a few people like Cynthia Johnson, who's another Black-owned chemist mm -hmm. um, that went there. I know Manessa, who went to Rutgers and studied cosmetic science. So we're starting to see a lot more people become familiar with it because beauty is starting to expand yeah, much yeah, larger yeah. and it's global yeah. now. And I've always found it fascinating when you think about the number of new brands that are born in America versus, mm -hmm. you know, the, versus, for instance, in France, you're like, and when I meet founders and I'm like, damn, you studied all of that by yourself? I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> there are degrees, you know, to help you understand like how the ingredients work together mm -hmm. or you should mix them together. And the number of people I have met that have started pretty much learning from scratch um, how to formulate products and do it effectively. It's quite, it's quite impressive, um, yeah. of course. Yeah. And you're even starting to see on YouTube how more people yeah. and more organizations are coming to YouTube and really showcasing their knowledge and expertise and how you mix the different ingredients and exactly. the different mm -hmm. emulsifiers and preservatives that are required because yeah. guys, all preservatives are not bad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you're starting to see a lot more availability the information yeah. in real this time is, at your fingertips. Yeah. This is what I find is very, I'm quite passionate of having had the opportunity to work in the US is, is that ability that individuals, especially people coming from, you know, minority backgrounds, right? Regardless of their ethnic uh, background, but the, the ability to just learn and make mm -hmm. things happen for themselves. You know what I mean? And, you know, we know mm -hmm. that education is also very expensive in this country. So forget about the fact that you may or may not know that that degree exists, right? That access to education is not available from for everybody, but the passion yeah. that people have that allows them to continue to pursue their passion from, you know, starting in their kitchen, like making like products and learning by trial and error versus me, it was sat in like you know it was sat yeah. in a classroom and learning it from somebody else I just, I just think it's quite fascinating to see that it happening. is mm. it really is and you know I wish I would have done things a little bit different when I was in college but I'm right where I'm supposed to be you know and exactly. I tell people you know even with my chemistry background they're like you should have studied cosmetic science and I'm like I didn't know that was a thing yeah I could go get a <laughs> certification but my love is packaging and yeah. to house all the beautiful formulations and ingredients that are created within the beauty world. So that's yeah. where my love is. And that's where I use my chemistry experience. So very fascinating. So since you've now have been in the beauty industry for what, almost 20 years now, is that right? 
Yes, you know. so in total, yeah, I guess, yeah, coming up to in that. In total, <laughs> yeah, and, and we're international, you know, yeah. coming from Paris, London, and now in the in the States, here in the New York, you know, kind of share with me a little bit about what you've seen change or evolve within the beauty industry. So I think, I mean, the speed at which you know, mm. brands are are being launched and products are being are being put in the in the market. This is something that is quite fascinating. I think that seeing, like as I said, you know, the, the biggest company, you know, them feeling challenged by the newcomers in the market, it is quite interesting. You know, I I, I sit in meetings with you know with our senior leadership and the fact that we're sitting around analyzing like small brands you know, mm -hmm. that are just starting to kind of be out in the market out there, like something that, you know, 20 years ago, nobody would have, you know, been concerned by yeah. NYX. Nobody would have been concerned by like the smaller brands that are there on YouTube or on Instagram. But these days, the impact that these brands have on the strategies that the larger companies are taking, is quite fascinating. So there is that that is quite uh, interesting to see, like much more people have a bigger voice within the industry. The message is not no longer just contrive to the to the who has the most money to push messaging forward through campaign of course it's still important of course you know the larger company are still you know topping the chart in terms of sales but mm -hmm. other people have a voice in within the industry and this is what i think fascinate i think has changed uh, a lot the speed to market is incredible the ability mm -hmm. of somebody to be able to, to to bring a product to life within a matter of like three four six months it's uh is quite interesting to see especially because it's still a challenge larger organizations yeah. <laughs> this, this is where we like oh how are we gonna be how are we able are to we gonna compete brands right mm -hmm. um so this is a uh, interesting and what i think is you know is that balance between being faster but still being on trend still being answering to consumer need and still being mindful of what you know today everybody talks about which is sustainability right mm -hmm. is there is a big question mark on like how can you be sustainable when actually when you are that fast in your delivery surely somewhere down the line you cut corners that are not supposed to be cut right, right. so this is an interesting a change in the in the conversation and and of course you know the biggest piece is uh the diversity aspect on mm -hmm. diversity and representation has evolved over the last two decades within the, the beauty industry. And again, how the big players being challenged by things that they have done in the past that they could have done better. They could have led that conversation, but for some reason it had it took the smaller brand, the passionate people, the people yeah. who have been, you know, studying by themselves, learning about the industry. It took all of them to come together for the bigger player to realize that, okay, there is something that we need to address in that area also in terms of diversity and representation. Oh, girl, like guys, did y'all just hear this from Sandra? Like she just dropped like so many gems and we're going to hit on some of the key points that she mentioned because we're going to go into all of them. First one, she talked about the speed of products in the market. We hear about speed to market all oh. the time, especially mm. if you work in corporate where you cannot launch a product in three to four months like the smaller brands. <laughs> it's taken us 12 plus months okay, yeah. of the full development plus and then considering where it's going to be launching at. It's U.S. only, exactly. U.S. Canada, U.S. Canada International. It's the whole thing. But anyway, speed to market is like the number one thing that you're hearing about, right? And I want to hit on some of the other key points too. Second thing, how you're analyzing, how corporations are analyzing small brands that are able to launch within the three to six month period. 
Number three, sustainability. That's the biggest word we're hearing universally across the board from small brands all the way to corporate. And then diversity representation. I, going back to me talking about, I wish I would have known about cosmetic mm -hmm. chemistry or the beauty industry growing up here in the States and going to college. That is part of like why I'm doing the podcast to bring more diversity and representation of yes. other Black people and minority groups in the industry, in packaging, how we can start to fill the need for it. So we're going to hit on all four of these points that you mentioned, because you just sped through all of that quickly. <laughs> like we in a Lamborghini, you just flew right through all of them. But I'm like, hold on, let's take a, a pause and admire this Lamborghini that's cruising by for us. So going to point number one, speed to market. So from your experience as a marketing executive, what things are you assessing to help with the speed of market for products to get into the marketplace and having the compelling campaigns that really resonate with the consumer? Yeah, I mean, as you said, like speed to market in larger organization is a, is a challenge because there is so many the processes that have been established uh, for very good reason to maintain quality, you know, steps of quality controls that are part of what larger organizations are able to do compared to smaller mm -hmm. one. We have to be, we have to be transparent when it comes to that, being able to source the right ingredients at the right place with the right partner. So it's, it's an aspect that, you know, even today I'm still challenged on being able to address how can we, you know, improve uh, speed to market. One thing that I often notice in, uh, in the day to day is that piece about consumer insight. The time that is taken to study what consumers want or things they want does impact the product development very well. And this is something that the, the smaller organization seem to be able to capitalize on much faster. So the way they collect feedback from their consumers through social media, the way they choose to act upon it is significantly faster than what we do within larger organizations. We go through multiple rounds of testing. A lot of the testing plots that we do do provide insights that will allow us to, as you said, deliver like compelling messaging and campaign and everything else. But sometimes you have to ask yourself the question, what would have happened if you hadn't spent six months testing? You know, eventually there, there are people out there that trust their guts a little bit more. When you work in larger mm -hmm. organizations, sometimes I feel like, you know, not just for me, but discussing with people outside my organization is I feel like, yeah, we don't trust our guts, guts enough. And one of the reasons maybe is not so much about trusting what we think is right. It's also the consequences, right? Once we launch a product, we place an order for a large quantity of material, we're still going to have to sell it, right? So that's why it's all the testing and that consumer understanding uh, takes a little bit longer. And sometimes I wish we could just be like, hey, here is an interesting consumer insight. Let's yep. act on it. We don't need to ask 20 million people in the world, do they believe in that insight? So it's mm -hmm. trying to find that balance uh, because if you launch a product that isn't successful, as it happens a lot, and sometimes a lot of companies do a lot of testing and the product still does not resonate in the market. And that's another conversation. But the question is like, how do you recover from that quickly enough that you can launch the next product? And that's something, again, that some of the smaller organizations do very well. They act upon consumer insight fast, and they react very fast also on how the product is um, perceived in the market. That's so true. And just within corporations, you know, we have, to your point, processes. Then we have the different departments we have to go through, especially regulatory and legal, to make sure we can. <laughs> Tell me about that. You know, I call them the redliners because they always like, nope, 
nope, nope, nope, nope, nope, nope. And I'm sure as a marketer executive, you know, you're like, we need to say this. This is what's going to really appeal to our consumers. But you're telling us that we have to change it to this. Like, it's always, you know, a tug of, I don't want to call it a tug of war, but it is a tug of war, you know, with trying to get the tone of voice and the messaging out there for the products, you know, to resonate with the consumer. Yeah. So. No. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, local and regulate legal and regulations are such also an important part, as you say, of the product development. And mm -hmm. it is frustrating when you come when you when you're a marketeer, specifically as you say, it's like well, the competitor does it right. Mm -hmm. So but does that make it right? Not necessarily. Does that mean that we're too harsh on ourselves? Um, yeah. Also, it's not necessary. So it's really on a case by case basis of what what seems right and what seems right to com communicate to the consumer because the last thing that you want to do of course is to communicate something that is not accurate or 100 mm -hmm. you know 100 on on message just for the sake of having something interesting to say and again yeah. it's all a, a balancing act and exercise of what is perceived as over the top versus what is perceived as an okay marketing messages which are yeah. always specifically coming in the in the u.s moving from london to the u.s i've worked for international brand and also i i know that regulation changed from one place to the other in the world mm -hmm. it was fascinating to see from a campaign perspective what you could do in the u.s versus what you could do in the uk yeah we're a little Literally. bit more lenient here you think we're a little bit more lenient here in the u.s Yes, and I think it, it, it's fine. I mean, something as simple as retouching, you know, when I was working on uh, on uh, on um, mascaras, right? Mm -hmm. How much you can retouch the lashes on a mascara advertisement, the difference oh, wow. between, yeah, the difference between the US and Europe was fascinating at the time. I know that has changed, but, you know, so, it, you know, basic thing uh, as that, what you could say on TV here versus, yeah, so the US regulation has always been a little bit more lenient uh, in terms of what what is perceived okay for the consumer, uh, but I think that I'm seeing over the years that it's starting to change, they're starting to adopt a model that is a little bit more in line to what we see uh, in Europe. In some ways, they are like a little bit behind versus what is happening in European market. But, you know, it's that, that balance versus what the yeah. consumer wants to hear and also what is what is perceived and okay messaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a whole lesson right there, because, you know, I start as I'm working with more emerging brands. They're like, oh, well, we want to go launch and start offering products to ship into Europe. Well, there's different requirements, oh. different it's a whole different ball game. Like, let's focus just on the U.S. first and tap and really mm -hmm. excel in this market and get your bearings first because you're not, I tell people, you may not be ready for international because it's yeah. a whole different set of regulation, guidelines, import, messaging, tone of voice, certain ingredients. Now we have mocha in place. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, it's always good to shoot big for the stars, but let's let's do it one and you know gradually get up to that point but let's dominate us first because mm -hmm. we know yeah. we know what we can do here versus trying to go and expand into europe so mm -hmm. you know to that point you know with the different regulations and things being a little bit more lenient here yeah. we're slowly i'm saying that's like very slow but we're slowly adopting but slowly <laughs> yeah slowly but i think it will be good once we do hit on i think it will be good once we do find our balance and start having cohesive messaging regardless yeah. of if it's u.s or international mm -hmm. so good ways to go still 
Yes. Um, next point I want to talk about quickly is some of the, like the data and the insights. So as you mentioned earlier in the episode, you mentioned how some of the corporations are now starting to analyze the smaller brands and how they're able to launch within a very accelerated time frame, three to six months, and how they're leveraging data insights. What are things that corporations can do on top of what you mentioned to start really capturing data and help drive like consumer insights? as well for the marketing. So, yeah. So, I mean, the biggest, the thing that has supported the smaller brand, like, you know, the fastest is that they have access to firsthand consumer data. So larger organizations have relied on retailers to be able to sell their product, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Retailers are not just sending all their data to the brands. They just don't do that, you know? So that's, so this is, so the challenge is how do we capture firsthand consumer data from the larger corporation? So basically, if you don't have a DTC website, you're very stuck in understanding of like, you know, what is driving the purchase of your particular product, right? And that's, that's the biggest thing that the larger corporation needs to do is to have a, a platform where they can capture that data rather than relying on what the retailers may communicate to them or as we know, as we, we do, we use like external companies to, to kind of drive data um, gathering for us, right? We were able to have that at the tip of our hand on daily basis. It will be much faster. And I think that some of the, you know, the brands that we have seen that have been very successful, like, you know, like Glossier, for instance, the first hand consumer data that she was able to gather within her blog is what has given her the edge to be able to be so on point with what the mm-hmm. consumer wanted at the time. And as I said, you know, how do you, it's your ability to have that data available to decipher what makes sense to keep and what not. And mm-hmm. to take risk and chances on like some of the things, you're never going to find 10,000 consumers saying exactly the same thing. No. You know what I mean? That, that's not going to happen. So sometimes it's just like, how does this insight make sense? And then when you start digging deeper and start asking questions based on one insight that only a few customers may have mentioned, that's mm-hmm. when you're able to kind of actually have propositions that consumer feels more related to. And I think that unfortunately, sometimes this is what is missing from the larger organization is to have that firsthand consumer data and be able to converse much faster with the consumer yeah. and then act upon what it what they want uh, at mm-hmm. the time where you find out the insight. Because finding the insight in January uh, of 2023 and launching the products in July of 2025, what yeah. the consumer said in January 2023 may well have changed 200, you know what I mean? So yeah. 180 degrees by the time it launched 18 months later. So it's that, it's that you know, that, as we said, that balance between capturing the insight, acting upon it and being able to make it available to the consumer fast mm-hmm. because, the, you know, there is too much movement in the market um, yeah. and, all, you know, very change a lot it doesn't seem that it does but it does it does change uh gradually specifically in makeup which are categories that are you know very trend focused and move and move very fast and what is also interesting in the world of insight is that having that understanding of there is a difference between attitudes and behaviors attitudes is what people say they're going to do when you ask them the question behaviors is Mm -hmm. what they actually do when they get to the shop and that filling that gap is very difficult because once you're in a setting of, you know, a study, you're sitting somewhere, someone asks you a question about, oh, your beauty habits. And it's not to say that people lie, it's to say that people don't necessarily 
take into account everything else once they're answering this particular question. And there is that idea that, you know, you, you like to think that this is what you're going to do. Like, you know, when I do my uh, consumer research and I ask people, does it matter to you that the brand is black owned? They say, yes, mm -hmm. that's an attitude. The behavior mm -hmm. is that when they get to the shop, do they actually buy your black owned brand? That's a behavior, yeah. you know? And it's not to say that, so that disconnect uh, is often sometimes that also uh, we need to take into account when we want to to think about consumer insight and how to fill that gap of the reality of what happened at the time you make a decision to buy versus what you think you're going to do. Mm. I've never heard it put that way. And you just said that so eloquently, but yet very concise and to the point of really differentiating between the attitude and the behavior of your consumers as part of that firsthand approach and gaining insight for the data. So I think that's gold. And guys, do y'all hear this? Like if you're not connected with Sandra, her links are down in the show notes for you all <laughs> because she is an executive marketer. She's international and she knows what she's talking about. But I think a lot of companies really needs to implement the attitude versus behavior approach within all industries. It does. It's not just applicable to beauty, but since we're talking about beauty, it is beauty, but yeah. it really is applicable in all industries, you know, from a marketing perspective, because nobody's put it that way. And I appreciate you for just putting it, being really frank, to be honest, mm -hmm. and very concise with this is what you I mean, really you know, need to focus thing, on. As I said, I don't think people, I, I think that, you know, we all have an idea of what, what we would like to happen, what would be the ideal scenario. And I think mm -hmm. that in beauty specifically, the way you close that gap between attitude and behavior is that if you deliver what the consumer said they wanted as fast as possible in an environment that is not, where there is no distraction when they actually make that purchase decision. Because this is what happens when you ask somebody what do you want in January 2023 and then you launch it in July 2025. Yeah. I moved on to something else. Yeah. By that time you had three different jobs, five babies, you may have lost your job, but for you know, I mean there's so many things that happen in life. That means that when you're gonna actually come down to the buying decision, well, yeah, it's gonna be a bit different to what you would have liked to do, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's one work. thing too, that even just working alongside of like mid, mid scale and corporations for products, like, I think that's like the really big thing. They're like, we got to hit this launch within this time frame because we're going to miss the trend, you know? So we have to do this in the rapidest, you know, lightning speed ahead to get to the speed to market, to really make sure we're having that firsthand approach with the consumer data mm -hmm. and insight to still be trending and still be relevant to keep the momentum. And it's like, we don't have 24 months to be going through and getting validation of testing, even though we have to, yeah. you know, sometimes we're like, well, what can we do in real time? What can we parallel thing? You know, what efforts can we parallel? How do we resonate or what claims can we start making immediately? You know, so we're looking at all of that to get to that speed to market and have the products be right on trend with consumers. Because to your point, you gain something two years, you know, gaining insights from two years ago, trying to launch a product, you missed the whole trend. Two years ago, yeah. my hair was on, a pro. On certain product category, definitely on all it, it it will you know it mm -hmm. will stay on and some of the some of the pain points of the consumer are not really going away within two years so right sets in certain categories and products you can do that but others you need to just be a little bit more a little bit yeah, faster. yeah that's true that's true and so speaking of we talked about speed to market now let's talk about sustainability it's the biggest yeah. word there is within all realms regardless of scale of businesses so as a marketing executive what things are you looking at as part of the sustainability story to create like compelling campaigns 
and also sustainable packaging. Like, why is that important for marketing purposes? Yeah. So what I think, so within my remit at, at the moment, it isn't my area of expertise. I collaborate with, with colleagues to be able to, you know, to utilize their learning for me to integrate that in my day-to-day. But really we have teams, you know, within the organization whose mm-hmm. uh, day-to-day job is really to kind of focus on how can we as an organization make our business more sustainable and as you say it does it we it, it, it touches so many different aspects of you know within within one business that you know it's even hard to tell you know where where is the biggest impact and um, yeah because you know and talking for myself uh personally you know outside of where i work outside of everything else in my my own belief i'm still struggling with that with that idea of sustainability in the long term as I said, I'm not that that uh, my level of expertise in it is not as deep as it could be, but that's why I think of myself as a you know a lambda customer, and I'm like mm. okay, if I don't understand it, understand it that that well, you know, how can we make that message more compelling to the consumer? Because it's one thing to be able to say that you're sustainable, but the understanding of what it means is yeah. very very different. There is so many different ways for sustainability to be impacted within the organization. Something mm-hmm. as simple as air freight. You know, we buy goods from you know uh, everybody buys goods from like you know different part of the world. How do you get your goods in your market? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you if you if you travel by boat, it's more sustainable than traveling by air. An organization mm-hmm. that may just decide to just cut all our air freights, you know, it mm-hmm. completely, is a, mm-hmm. is a step towards sustainability. Is that something that the consumer relate to? Maybe not. You know, it's, it's always yeah. that it's always that balance of you know what does a consumer understand sustainability to be. So they're going to be they might be sitting around thinking like. When you're packaging or this doesn't seem that sustainable, yes, but other companies do have sustainable packaging, but they still air freight them to the US. Mm -hmm. So where where do you find the balance of where sustainability lands? And this is why it is an important conversation, specifically, as I mentioned, you know, we talked about how can we be fast and still sustainable at the same time? I think it's Mm -hmm. one of the biggest challenges that everybody everybody has uh, at the moment and from a consumer perspective as I said I put myself in the you know in the shoes of a a consumer I don't always understand what sustainability means where when certain organization tells me that they're sustainable I'm like what does that mean end of the line end of the line products you know you launch a product a limited edition it hasn't sold through what do you do with what is left Mm -hmm. how does that impact your sustainability messaging you know Mm -hmm. there is so many different aspects of sustainability that it's hard for me to to kind of connect with certain industries. Like what what does that mean for you, and what actually do you act upon? Because packaging is one thing, but it's by I I, I may be wrong, but I don't think it's a is a biggest driver of you know sustainability impact globally across everything that is being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so number one, I want to break this sustainability down because it's the big word right now. First, mm-hmm. I appreciate you just being candid. Like that's not my area of expertise. But, you know, as a marketer, you're still looking at what is the full story behind sustainability, but what does that mean? Yeah. How is it going to really resonate with the consumer? And those that's the main question I ask brands because they're like, I want sustainable packaging. Well, what yeah. does that mean for you? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the impact for your consumer or your ideal client? Like what, what, do, what are they going to gain for the benefits? So yeah. I asked the exact same question. I talk about that on my interview with sustainable packaging podcast 
um, you know, respectfully for the beauty industry. Like, what does sustainability mean for you? That's yeah. like the number one question before you even go down the rabbit hole of any sustainability initiatives, any type of sustainable operations, sustainable packaging, sustainable ingredients, sustainable inks. Like it starts to go down a whole big path. And now we have guidelines yeah. that are coming into place, like packaging, extended producer responsibility, EPR. You know, we're looking at sustainable practices with MOCRA, yeah. you okay. know, so- mm -hmm. It's like, what does that mean? But also the other point you mentioned was like sustainable packaging. It's becoming a really big conversation, like from a global impact. You know, when you have brands like Sephora with clean and planet positive brands or clean at Sephora, um, you have other initiatives going on internally within these organizations. You're starting to have, you know, global sustainable packaging coalitions to catch up with what international, mm -hmm. like European countries, Australia, other countries are doing with packaging and how to put it back in the circular economy. It's a big conversation. We're still in this infancy stage in transparency, but sure. I think we're starting to slowly, as I mentioned, slowly adopt, you know, some best practices and how do we have the right infrastructure in place to have sustainability looked at as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I, and I, and I agree, as you say, it's still at the big, it's still at the infancy stage and it's still a learning curve for everybody, you know, involved yeah. in uh, involved in the system. I mean, for me, you know, I do, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, we, are we going back to what recyclable was when we started talking about, you know, let's recycle everything. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we created like a whole separate industry was created for recyclable yep. products. And yep. as, you know, five, 10, 15 years goes by and I'm like, well, actually we can't really recycle everything. But I, you know, mm -hmm. for me as a consumer at the time, I was still, I was, I was studying um, when, you know, when all of that was happening, I was just starting my career and trying to see like what it means when you're actually within the industry, when you're actually working, you know that there are so many people who are very passionate about all of these different aspects and actually are trying to make a difference in the way we approach business and practices, right? So yes, we create separate organization to manage the things that we, we the messaging that we want to deliver to the consumer, but you know, it's like everything else. My perception of recycle, recyclable items at the time was that we we want we want to make we want people to feel okay to consume. It's okay mm. to continue to consume as much because fine we can recycle, right? Mm. When we all know that you know the, the amount of consumption is the biggest problem to start with, right? But right. if, if you give the consumer uh, an idea that, okay, we, we don't want you to stop consuming, don't worry, we're going to do something about what happened after you have consumed, mm -hmm. then it makes people feel okay. I yeah. feel like within sustainability, there is there is more a part of trying to even address the consumer, you know, the, the consumerism that we have all, you know, that we are all participating into, you know, myself included, mm -hmm. working in the in the beauty industry. I feel like sometimes I'm starting to see, you know, having deeper conversation with people that we are actually trying to address some aspect of consumerism, but it's still, as you say, at the at the beginning, and we. That's why I'm like, let's wait and see because yeah, yeah. Are we creating a whole new industry and you know, 
all new things about sustainability and yeah. in 15, 20 years, somebody is going to say, well, actually, we don't really do that, but, you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, after further analysis, we don't have the right infrastructure. Like, we that's don't. what I'm saying. No, not yet. But I, as I said, I, I can tell, I see passionate people who have all the good intention, better yeah. knowledge of what can, cannot be done, better mm -hmm. collaborations between, uh, you know, between different partners and different aspects. So let's see where we're going to get to and, you know, as much as, you know, recyclability has evolved and changed over the years, we're still in a better place than where we were 20, 15 years ago. So mistakes have been made along the way, and it, it's bound to happen when you do something new. So I'm sure it will happen when it, when it comes to sustainability. Yeah. But on the long term, hopefully we will be in a better in a better position than what where we are today. Yeah, I definitely hope so, too. So look, God willing or whatever you believe in. Yeah. Hopefully we see in the next 15, 30 years, you mm -hmm. know, within our lifetime, we hope to yes. be able to see it and, <laughs> and see the fruits of our labor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as we're starting to shift gears to our other topic to really highlight about like your experience within entrepreneurship and really your how you really cultivated your brand, My Curl ID, share a little bit about what My Curl ID is and what made you lead, go down the path of entrepreneurship as an executive. Um, yes. And I mean, you know, we, we talked about, uh, at the beginning and, you know, how marketing and beauty, uh, is evolving over time. And I did mention that, that question of like, you know, diversity and representation. And for me, it's really, that's, that's one of my main driver when I, when I think about what's happening within the healthcare industry targeted at, uh, at black, brown people, curly hair, textured hair, however you want to, to to call it right i like many like many people of like many of my peers you know working within the beauty industry over the years i i have seen the evolution of what diversity meant for brands i'm yet to see the full evolution of what representation means because it's two mm. very separate pieces yeah. and very separate uh, conversation um uh, interestingly enough i was discussing like a campaign idea recently and I was like can we please not have a white a black a Chinese a redhead person on the campaign just because we think it's the right thing to do you know if, mm. it's, if it's not part of the story let's not do that because it's getting to a point where addressing diversity and representation is becoming very very challenging for brands to do it authentically and I feel like they, they're sometimes they're struggling to understand what authentic actually means and mm -hmm. I'm actually not that hard it's really not yeah. that and if you, you would want, think you would yeah. think it's not that hard yeah. yeah and like if you really want to address diversity because you think it's part of your uh, you know marketing message you also need to address representation and it's too big separate topic and i think that we are yet to see the the impact of representation within the within the beauty industry and again it's really not that hard. And, you know, yeah. there's, there's many things that different people can do to participate in, uh, in, in doing that. I've decided to focus on, uh, on hair care because of all the category of beauty, hair care for textured hair, yeah, it's mm -hmm. mostly bots and uh, by, you know, black people. So I'm like, yeah. okay, we should be able to see, we should have a bigger piece of that industry and that category. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. enough of, uh, there are enough education, knowledge, uh, interest and passion within that particular product category that, you know, we should be able to, to, to build something where we feel like representation is 
is no longer a question, mm -hmm. considering that the product is only used by a certain type of people, representation shouldn't be an issue there. But yet we are still seeing like, you know, uh, some challenges uh, here. So I've decided, you know, I, I, I thought about making a product, you know, and, and I think like for me, I'm like, I don't think there is a lack of products. We talked about all of these, yeah. you know, entrepreneurs that have educated themselves in like a deep understanding of hair category, products mm. in And like, there are so many people who have done the work already. I'm like, I don't think product is what is missing. I think like what I thought was the biggest challenge for me as a consumer was the retail environment. Mm. And I felt like the way hair is uh, marketed and sold for black individual is still very fragmented we're starting mm -hmm. to see some changes within you know within the industry but we're not there yet i still have to go through six seven eight different retail environments just to be able to buy my hair care products for the year right mm. so you know yes i use breads i use extension i also use shampoo i also go to the salon i also do x y and z right black people yeah. diversity of hair is uh is, is something that we know is part of the you know it's, it's part a beautiful of the thing culture, right it's a yeah. beautiful thing beautiful it's part thing. of the of the culture and yes we want to celebrate it but for some reason again we see the diversity but we don't see the representation and when it comes to the representation on shelf, when it comes to re representation, you know, within the industry, like in marketing team, in uh, product development teams, in all mm -hmm. of that, we are still yet to see the, the biggest impact. And I think yeah. it's important for us to be driving it. We need ally, like, you know, as we know, I'm not, I'm not intending to build something that is just for Black people, with Black people. I, that's not my intention. But my intention is to develop something where representation is key and we make sure that we, we celebrate and put forward the individuals who actually can deliver. It's one mm -hmm. thing when, you know, 20 years ago, somebody was like, well, but, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, Black marketeers and Black X, Y, mm -hmm. Z. I'm like, okay, fine. I, I You know, we pass yeah. that. So it's enough. <laughs> yeah. There is enough of every single function. There is enough of every single, you know, area of expertise. There is enough of everything that really, if you wanted representation to be your number one uh, goal, you could make it happen. And, mm -hmm. uh, and specifically when it comes to hair care, um, is still something that we have to work on. And the mm -hmm. retail environment is too too fragmented, not elevated enough. You know, I I generally think that, you know, there is so much more that can be done. And this is my my passion and my intention is to give a platform to all the individuals that can that wants to contribute positively and make a mm -hmm. positive impact on celebrating black individuals hair, but also representation within within that. I love that. Oh my gosh, guys. If you wanted a retail marketplace to see and tap into black and minority owned hair, hair brands and to be educated, microid.com, because that is a whole lesson, not only with black diversity or minority diversity, but also representation. Because as Sandra mentioned, there are two different things, two different paths, two different efforts. They are not all the same. You know, but with that, go and support her her online store because when I went through there, looking at the different products, looking at the different messaging on there, like I've been all through your website. Um, I'm like, even though I no longer have my curly big fro, I have locks, mm -hmm. but I still utilize yeah, still, those same exactly. products mm -hmm. for my locks. And depending upon the season, now at yeah. the time of this interview, it's getting cold, so my hair care regimen for wintertime mm -hmm. is different it, it, than it, it is the different. summertime. 
And it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, I'm still at the beginning of what I, is my, my vision. And my vision is to cater for every single hairstyle heavy mm -hmm. single hair type, regardless mm -hmm. of what your hair season is. So at the yeah. moment, I have focused on having products who have a direct benefit to the scalp because that's where is, you know, where mm -hmm. your healthy hair journey starts, right? But as you say, as, a, as an individual who has many hair seasons during the, during the year, if mm -hmm. I walk into, I'm going to say a Walgreens or even a Sephora, right? Yeah, I'm going to walk yeah. there and I'm going to say, hey, you know, this is what my hair looks like. And what, you know, what mm -hmm. should I be doing? Like in the, in the winter months, if I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, I'll challenge you to find a single person that can answer accurately to that question. They have put yep. all of that category within like, you know, curly, coily, textured hair. First, assuming that that means the same thing for everybody, that yeah. there is no differentiation within that. I'm like, yes, people sometimes struggle to understand that even if you wear weave, you still have natural hair. Yes. <laughs> sometimes that's just a distinction. Sometimes people are like, oh yeah, but she doesn't have natural hair. She wear a wig. I'm like, she still has natural hair. She still has her hair. Under that, right? So, you know, so trying to kind of up but it requires a different routine than if you wear your, like, you know, your, your Afro, right? That, that's, a, mm -hmm. that's a basic, but that differentiation is yet to be understood by the retail environment that we shop uh, from. And this is where, you know, as I said, my vision is beyond the representation is also to be able to provide education to individuals. So I'm looking at the moment to partner with different, you know, stylist experts. Mm -hmm. I have the product expertise and all of that, but I'm not a stylist, and I'm yeah. I'm partnering with uh, with stylist uh, stylist expert to to really understand, as you say, if you wear locks, what is the best regimen for you and the type of products? Why mm -hmm. do we have to assume? And it's not we don't have to assume. We know it's not correct, but the yeah. the people currently leading the retail environment. I'm not willing to go to the next step. They're like, okay, we're going to store the products. We're going to make them yeah. available beyond glass most of the time, because God forbid we want to steal them. And then, but there is no, where is the next step after that? You know, mm -hmm. and as I'd like to say, you know, until Sephora starts stocking wigs and weaves, you're still going to have a fragmented uh, distribution. And I don't think mm. they're going to do that anytime soon. I may be wrong, but let's see. Yeah, honey, like, look, because I was about to say something about like, I'm, I'm going to say that for a later day. But, um, but to your point we do have a gap within retail that's you know really has the education proper education yeah. around textured hair um i did hear about a recent collective that was started the texture education collective mm -hmm. where you have in different um corporations that have partnered together to really educate cosmetology students about the importance and how to style textured hair i don't know if there's an opportunity there to do some research collaboration oh, or whatever. Oh, yeah, definitely. I will, I will um, uh, I'll take a look. Thank you. Yeah, I, absolutely. And there's a couple of stylists and trichologists that come to mind that I would love to introduce you to as well as part yeah. of your cohort mm -hmm. of yeah. stylists and trichologists as part of testing. Because to that point, scap health is now becoming a big trend, more widespread. But specifically, like within Black culture, we from the time I was a little bitty girl, my mom would brush my hairs. Grandmama would actually style my hair, oil my scalp, grease it, massage my scalp and everything. That was part of like the scalp health regimen with yeah. us growing up. So now we're using different elixirs, different, you know, different uh, essential oils and how it may do a tingling effect. I love me peppermint, rosemary, yeah. and tea tree blend on my scalp. You know, so with that scalp health is important to then help with promotion of hair growth 
encourage hair growth and ultimately feel good about yourself. You know, so I think I really commend you for creating micro ID to really be a differentiator from a retail marketplace standpoint and having the representation and going beyond the representation too with the products and the offering and the education that's mm-hmm. centered around my curl ID. So I love that. Um, so as you're an entrepreneur and you're like marketing executive, how are you balancing these worlds? With it's hard. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I, I, I got to the point where I, um, I'm in it for the long run, right? I, I know it's not a, it's not a, like a, a tomorrow, uh, solve i think that yeah. it, it takes a village to do to do everything and i'm uh, i'm 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 focused on the long term benefits that i can provide within the community and i'm focusing on associating with the with the right people to be able to do that it's mm-hmm. it's very hard because of course you know time is the biggest constraint being able to spend enough time by on something that you're so passionate about is a, is the a largest uh, challenge for me Mm-hmm. The time that I have available, and I've I've noticed over the last the last year also, is that you have to make sacrifices. You know what I do at my at the weekend, what I do after work, before work, all of that. You know there is so much time within a day, right? So you have to make mm-hmm. your choices on what you, what you're gonna do. But beyond allocating the time, what I have been the most challenged with the last twelve months is the mental capacity. So mm-hmm. it's one thing to have your Saturday and Sunday open for you to work on your, your side project is another thing for your brain to be in a, <laughs> in a state at which you can even think and work effectively. And yep. that's still something that I, you know, I'm learning on a on daily basis. I'm still learning to, to understand for me as, you know, when are my most effective uh, time uh, mm-hmm. during the week, morning, evening, uh, lunchtime, or you know during the weekend. So that's something that changes according to the time of the year. Um, yeah. also the challenge, of course, beyond time is uh, skill set. Right? We have. I don't know, you know, I, like most people, you know, I doubt myself a lot. I'm like, oh, I need to find an expert in X, Y, and Z before I can do that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not necessary. I know I've wasted a lot of time thinking that there are certain things that I couldn't do myself because I didn't think that I was good enough to do it. And then realizing mm-hmm. that actually um, it's you don't need external people all the time, right? Yeah. It's important to recognize where you are not uh, the best um, person to do that and then seek, you know, the, the expertise uh, elsewhere. And that, but you also have to to rebalance the things that actually you can do certain thing yourself, because mm-hmm. finding people to partner with, even if you pay them, it's a lot of time. You know, the quality of the work that you're gonna be uh, receiving, uh, you need to let go, of course, of controlling every single thing, and that's fine. I, I can do that, but you know, you start working with somebody for two or three months, and then you know they move on with their lives, they have something else to do, and then you you're left with like a gap in your you know in your team uh, you know Mm -hmm. of freelancers uh, which is what I use and the cost you know it's Mm -hmm. not uh, it's not it's not free you know you you know I I hate using people's time for free so um, I will never you know it's not really something that I want to do I think that everybody that wants to 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 do some work should be paid for it Uh, I want to do I negotiate with my vendors freelancers of course based on my budget but it's it's based on my budget rather than based on what they think I think they can deliver I think that mm-hmm. it gets to a point when we talk about representation you know again mm-hmm. you know, representation diversity 
you have multiple diverse models in your campaign as they all paint the same. This is for mm -hmm. me is a difference between diversity and representation. Diversity is having different people. Representation is to make sure that they are valued to the same level as everybody else. So when I work with freelancer, I'm like, you know, I appreciate your skill set. I can't afford you right now. I'm going to save that for when I have more money. In the meantime, mm -hmm. I have to select people who maybe have less experience and mm -hmm. it's more work for me, you know, to, to manage yeah. and brief but this is this is what I, I have to do for the time being so um it is a challenge I'm not gonna lie I think that my next step is yeah. to identify like actually bringing in business partners to make sure I can you know deliver my vision uh faster than uh, mm. I'm currently doing but as I said it's a step-by-step -step process and yeah. uh, you know, you need you need to you need to be committed and know why you're doing certain things, and that's why it's what that's what's going to give you the, the the reason to continue on all of these days where I'm sitting there thinking, oh my god, nobody buys from my website, and that happens. So, you know, don't get me wrong, it's very hard. Oh yeah, oh you yeah. Know, attitudes versus behavior. Um, it's very hard <laughs> to, to get people to do certain things, even if they believe in what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. and and that's fine. You know, I I have enough validation in the knowledge of the industry, the people that I work with, and I just need to to continue to to push. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You being honest and be like, it's a challenge. And here is where I'm I'm having I'm experiencing the challenges at is real. It's raw. And it's the the ugly truth that people really don't tell you with balancing your job, building a business, mm -hmm. the different stages you go through, you deal with a lot of imposter syndrome. You know, you need to work on the weekends, but mentally you are not even there because you're like, I'm just decompressing from the week I had or from the day I had. And how yeah. do I even reposition my mindset to do this? And they always say, well, you just got to keep moving, keep, keep hustling, keep grinding. And that's true and all. But yet, mm -hmm. ultimately, your health, self-care has to be on point. That's a work in progress for me, too. Yeah, Because even me building my business, building out contractors hiring team members and mm -hmm. being the head of all departments like you are you know it doesn't get any easier it's become full-time yeah. it's just you just learn to juggle the mm -hmm. different pieces when they come but my biggest piece of advice to you is make sure you rest so if you're yes. not mentally up for it Mm -hmm. don't force it because it's not going to produce as much fruitfulness yeah, as you true. intend mm -hmm. you know so that's the biggest thing I've learned with me operating my business is when it's time to rest we gotta rest to be. yeah because if we don't intentionally do so our body is going to make us shut down and be yeah. forced to rest mm -hmm. so I want to give you that piece of feedback Thank I am you. rooting for you mm -hmm. I'm encouraging you however I can support you with my curl ID we're going to introduce you to some stylists and trichologists for partnerships. Yes. Whatever I can do to help support you in this effort, in this endeavor, I'll be happy to. Because it is, more, you know, it's diversity, but it's also representation and going beyond that too. So I want to make sure I'm a support person for you as you're in this new stage. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And uh, and you're right, you know, sometimes you just, you know, you just need to rest and uh, not feel guilty. You know, uh, once you, I, like you, you know, when you start doing something, you're already so far ahead compared mm -hmm. to a lot of people who just have the idea. And I mm -hmm. think like, you know, what, what I deal with when I am like trying to rest is being, even being able to rest, as you say, is like yeah. getting to the mental capacity where you don't feel guilty about resting. 
you know, where you don't feel like, oh and my God, do. I could be doing something while meanwhile. Yeah. And that's the part also that is a struggle for me. I understand the time required for my body, my mind to rest, but to be able to do it effectively without feeling guilty is a challenge because, you know, yeah. we are bombarded by like, I try, I cut my, I cut off my time that I spend on social media because I'm like, yeah. oh my God, look at her. Yeah, started only a year ago and this is what they're doing and we compare mm -hmm. ourselves to a lot of people not knowing what their story is and who is doing yeah. what for them and I'm like how do they have the time how do we have that this and that and the other and exactly yeah. and you just have yeah. to appreciate your own journey that you're doing the best you can uh, mm -hmm. with the best in intention and uh, one day you will be able to to get to where you need to be but as yeah. you know the journey I know it sounds very cliche but the amount it of people is. that I have met over the last two years since I started, that alone for me is a reward. Because yeah. as I said, there is so much coming from a different country. I moved here, I had to build a network, right? So, but seeing like, as I said, there, there is enough there is enough knowledge, mm -hmm. there is enough passion, there is enough money even within within the community to make certain yeah. things happen. So yeah. uh, just being seen, able to see that and discuss with people the passion that I see, uh, it it's part of, for me, it's part of the experience uh, of everything. Mm -hmm. So one step at a time. And um, that's it. That's yeah. it. It's a marathon. It's a long distance marathon. It is yeah. not a short sprint. And even the people we see on social media, they're like, I did this in three months. I think about, I go back to product development with this um, because when you're starting to prepare for a launch, right? You don't start highlighting stuff when you're in R&D phase. You don't start, you really start the marketing efforts like for pre-sales, like, okay, we're, we kind of know what the production schedule is going to look like. We're having packaging be delivered to the CMs. Uh, we're now starting to do pre-sales and pre-launches, things of that sort, PR, et cetera. So that's when the efforts are going out, right? And it's only like within that certain short period of time. Mm -hmm. So same thing I think of with social media, people who highlight, oh, I did this in three months. Not saying some people don't, but I think some of it is overemphasized. Glamorizing yeah, I mean, you know, this is what social media is, right? Social media was yeah. always, uh, it, it, it has that, it has that part, but we like it or not, we, we still yes. mentally rea react mentally, to it, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I'm always, and, you know, we talk about the challenge of uh, entrepreneurship, you know, beyond the time and everything that we talk is the financial aspect. And I, I have, a, you know, whether I like it or not, I still, I have to maintain a job. I, I have to pay like, you know, I have, nothing wrong with that. I have financial responsibilities that I have to, yeah. to take care of. And when I see other people like, oh no, I'm full-time in my, in my start, in my thing. And I'm like, I'm sitting there thinking about who pays your bills? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answer. You know, uh, I, don't, I, yeah. I don't have that answer, but sometimes I'm just sitting there thinking, damn. Yeah. Girl, let me, let me tell you. Because I'm full-time in my business and mm -hmm. I tell people, do not sleep on a nine to five. I will go back and give me a nine to five quickly to get the benefits, to get the 401k contributions yes, and with the matching, um, to have paid vacation time off, paid sick time off. Because in this entrepreneurship world, if you don't work, yeah. you don't have no money. And then some days yeah. you looking yeah. at your bank account and the money's not producing, but you're like, I didn't spend 80 hours one week. Yeah. I ain't made no money. Yeah. So I tell people, I don't knock no... I don't knock not one single person for working a nine to five and building a business. 
whatever is gonna help pay that, yeah, your because, life because for me i feel like i would be i grew up in a in a in a, in a family where you know we we didn't have a lot of money right so my my very early on my mind is set on like i need to be able to provide financially i think i would lose sleep over having to, exactly. to think about you know where where my next you know my next paycheck is going to be so that's that's a that's a sacrifice I make. I'm like, I, I, I don't think I will have the mental capacity to, to yeah. be stressed about money because I, I've seen that happening uh, growing yeah. up and I don't think I could I could do that. So yeah, that's my balance. Uh, that's, that's my balance for now. And then hopefully I'll get to a place where I can transition, but it will happen when don't it happens. Look, don't rush it. Look, don't yeah. rush it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I'll say this too, to wrap up, like with full-time entrepreneurship, they own social media still, you know, yeah. sometimes they'll make it be glamorized. Like, oh my gosh, I run my own schedule. Oh my gosh, my time is my own. Oh my gosh, I made six figures in X amount of time. But yeah, we only know that short little window that mm-hmm. they disclose on there because they're not telling you about the sleepless nights. They're not telling you about how they're going to make <laughs> payroll or even how to pay themselves. They're yeah. not talking about, okay, I didn't make no money for this whole week. And now I got to pay freelancers, contractors. You know, I'm trying yeah, to find yeah. clients. I'm trying to do marketing advertising i'm trying to hire an agency but yet i don't have the capital to really hire yeah, them but i'm yeah, trying to figure yeah. out how i can barter we're not telling you that yeah. i'm just being honest you know so it, i tell people it's to each its own so if full-time entrepreneurship part-time entrepreneurship yeah. working in corporate whatever floats your boat to maintain your livelihood and your household and your family do whatever works what for is, you yeah, you're right you're right it's uh whatever works works for you and this is why you know this as you say like what people uh disclose on their social media or else is one thing and i you know i listen to a lot of podcasts of entrepreneurs and that's why this is a more interesting as you say conversation because that's when you can really see the vulnerability of individuals Mm -hmm. uh i recently not recently but you know six months ago i listened to the can't recall her name the the woman who started it cosmetic and Mm -hmm. Yes, she's very successful now. And yes, she may not have shared that story at the time when she started It Cosmetic, but it doesn't change the fact that she spent two years at, you know, in 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 a very difficult financial situation trying mm-hmm. to, to, to push what she believed in. And as she, mm-hmm. she explained, like the number of times that people just said no to her, nobody mm-hmm. cares about It Cosmetic, it's not going to work, there's no proposition there and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's that's the reality. There was no, yeah. there was no glamour in uh, in her first two years of uh, setting up her business. But yeah, she she continued. She was very close to give up until somebody uh, said, "Okay, wait, why don't we, why don't we try?" You know. Yeah, yeah. And you have sometimes all you need is that one yes. That's all you need, just one yes. uh, Well, all you need is one yes, and I think that you know that you know what you what is what is important is. preparation you know you you need to be prepared for the day the opportunity is going to come if you don't if you're not ready the opportunity might come to you that you know to be able to take you know your your idea to the next step and you're going to be like oh now you wish you had done x y and z so you know it's not about the amount of time it takes it's how prepared you are when the opportunity is gonna is gonna come your way Mm -hmm. and honey yours is coming it's already here this is going to be enhanced and elevated for me. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank so you. Sandra. Great conversation. Absolutely. Likewise. And as we start to wrap up, I like to do one last thing, last minute, which is our power round. 
So we like to ask our powerhouse guests about some of their favorites, put them on their toes as well, um, to just give them a 60 second power round asking about top highlights. So Miss Sandra, you ready? Yes. All right. Let me put 60 seconds on the clock and we'll go ahead and get started here. All right. So what is one piece of advice you would give to someone that is interested to work in the beauty industry? I will tell them to, to explore all of the roles that are available and not, not, not be focused on just what they see as a consumer, but realize that there is so much more that goes into that industry that are very exciting too. Mm, I love that. Explore all the roles. Very good. Um, okay. So fill in the blank, marketing and packaging go together like... Oh, wow. Marketing and packaging go together like uh, cousins, I would say. They're not cousins. sisters, but I think they're more like cousins. Okay. And why you say cousins? Because there is, a, there is an element of like, you know, familiarity and you need to be close, but you also need to be able to give some distance. If you only focus on one or the other, you're not, it's not going to work. So you need to be able to appreciate what packaging does separate to marketing, but still be part of the same family. Mm, right on time. Okay. And I'm going to ask you one last question, even though we're beyond the 60 seconds, is share with the audience how they can help support your diversity and Black representation in the beauty industry. Well, at the moment, I have a questionnaire that I'm going to share on LinkedIn and I will share it with you. Uh, okay. A lot of time people feel like, you know, they have to participate financially to make a difference in what they want to do. And it's not the case at the moment. I'm doing, you know, consumer insight, first end data, as we discussed earlier. So, you know, if you have five minutes to complete my questionnaire, that would be uh, a very good step in supporting what I am doing. Perfect. And guys, everything with Sandra's information. So to learn more about My Curl ID, to connect with her on LinkedIn, and to take the five-minute questionnaire, all of those details will be down in the show notes for you all. So all you have to do is just scroll down to them and click the buttons, click the links, and you'll be navigated to the respective places. So Miss Sandra, thank you so much for being our featured powerhouse for today. And I look forward to continuing to support your efforts with My Curl ID. And guys, make sure you do follow, like, and subscribe to our channels. And also give us a five-star rating because we love some love. And also let us know how we can do better with these podcasts as well. So until next time, I'll see you at the product and packaging episode.